0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcasts, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at CleanCapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. Today's guest is Chris Archer, Senior Managing Director and Head of Americas at Macquarie's Green Investment Group. Under Chris's leadership, the Green Investment Group has commercialized over one gigawatt of renewable energy projects in North America, playing a key role as an investor, advisor, and project manager, and furthering our transition to a clean energy economy. Host John Powers digs into Chris's deep experience in infrastructure and renewable energy investing and explores his thoughts on the opportunities for the continued growth of clean energy, as well as some of the complex
0: challenges that remain barriers for investors in the sector. As always, you can get more episodes on cleancapital.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Chris, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. Thanks very much for having me, John. You've got a really amazing background. I'm going to dive in the professional side uh, in, in a bit. But, you know, you, you, uh, as you we were just talking offline, you you grew up in a military family and moved moved around a little bit. But you ended up, you know, in your university years and in London. What in that experience really triggered you to get interested in in finance and and uh and then later in the environment?
1: So yeah, I I started off doing a civil engineering degree. I actually applied to do a mechanical engineering degree and then spent a year with the the British Army Royal Engineers and kind of like which was more civil engineering, kind of like or at least military civil engineering, so the building bridges and things like that. So switched to a civil engineering degree. And I guess the the thing that Motivated me to want to do civil engineering was the idea of yeah you know, being behind like making big projects happen. For me, that was sort of one consideration, and then I guess the other consideration was I I had a really fantastic economics professor when I was at university. It was a transport economist and and he used you know, economics to solve sort of real world problems and particularly real world, world problems around the provision of infrastructure. So whether it's roads or whether it's railways and how to use kind of economic modeling to create signals for new investment in, in those pieces of infrastructure to reduce congestion or to make uh, public railways more efficient so that that got me quite interested in like kind of how all that works and actually that I was more interested in I guess in 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 the sort of theoretical models of, of economics than in the theoretical models of you know how to stop a bridge from falling down
0: um, right right
1: so I started looking for a job that could combine kind of my two interests with one which was you kind know, of like economics and finance and kind of how you pay for things and how you measure demand and pricing and the other thing which was making big projects happen.
0: And was Macquarie the first place you went post-university? Yeah, pretty much.
1: I did yeah. a little bit of consulting and little working for, for a consultancy that my economics professor ran but pretty much I joined Macquarie as a graduate but like kind of a year after graduating.
0: And then when did you transition from, you transitioned to the, the, the U.S. to sort of lead the green energy uh, for America's practice, but that's after having spent a, a significant amount of time working on these issues in in London, right?
1: You know, we were in a team whose you know who, whose purpose was to find find big projects um, to to invest in and um, sort of pull pull together the delivery of those projects. You know, invest the equity and then ultimately you know ultimately yeah. sell that equity to infrastructure funds or pension funds. And so we were always hunting for you know the next projects, and it was actually. Just especially in the in Europe, where projects actually had quite a lot of infrastructure projects run procured by governments and renewable projects had a lot of similarities in that the 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 revenue streams were relatively contracted or underwritten by sort of government-backed renewable energy certificates. You know, it was actually for me easier to find renewable energy projects at some point than to bid uh, for these you know complex government infrastructure projects, which took you know many years to come to fruition. A renewables project, you could just go you know. Chat to a developer and then come to an agreement to provide financing to their projects, and um, it was much quicker, and there was a lot more, there was a lot more opportunity. Um, And I guess that would have been sort of 2012 time when we really started looking at that, and and we also looked at the so we across the team, you know, I was started to look at solar. There was someone else who was looking at the transmission rights for offshore wind. And then we started looking at the offshore wind assets themselves, waste to energy, which had been procured by government through PPP structures, you know, and and biomass projects also were a feature of that. So, you know, between sort of 2012 and 2014, 2015, the, the Macquarie team really, that that team was just doing infrastructure, really started to to branch out doing a lot of renewable energy projects in a lot of different sectors. And so the team really really grew from that point. And by sort of 2015, it was almost like a independent renewable energy investment business sort of sitting alongside the infrastructure business. Yeah. And then the, you know, ultimately, I guess in in 2017 we acquired the UK government's Green Investment Bank, which had been set up in around 2012 to address the need for capital in particularly sort of underserved sectors of the the renewable energy space, especially offshore wind and and waste, waste treatment solutions and some sort of CNI projects where there wasn't there was perceived to be a shortage of private capital. Uh, in the market at that time, but by 2017, the government had decided that there was a lot of private capital available, and it made sense for them to actually monetize the Green Investment Bank and all of its investments. Uh, and Macquarie, you know, won that that bid. Um, it was a Macquarie consortium with with some pension funds backing us and, and our infrastructure funds that so we won that bid. And I was involved in integrating that business into Macquarie. It became the deputy head of the business in 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 Europe, and then in in 2018, moved moved over to the US to sort of launch that brand um, over here, right. uh, which we're calling the Green Investment Group, and and we've we've launched that brand now around the world.
0: Yeah, you guys are doing amazing, amazing. I mean, Macquarie's really become a premier investor in this space. But I want to, before talking a little more about Macquarie, I want to, you know, you've you've been in this space for you know well over a decade and and have seen it mature over the last ten years. You know, later on, I want to talk about what the next ten years look like. But you know what in your experience you know what are some of the really important lessons you've seen uh, as this market really a- emerged from you know at best an alternative technology to now sort of a mainstream a mainstream energy source it's
1: it's it's definitely been a really interesting time and i think you know if we sat here talking about what the decade ahead looked like in in 2010 i think yeah. we probably would have been wrong just we wouldn't have been as um as bold I guess or as optimistic about what the future held for for renewables and 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 the rate at which technologies could change and I think the I guess I think the lessons that i've learned have been that the role of government is super important um, especially in having a, a clear plan a clear idea of where support's needed for different technologies because you know a lot of the things that are now really major features of the renewable energy landscape, whether it's offshore wind, I think is a particular example, especially in Europe, right. or even just you know the, the the fact that solar is so cheap now. Uh, none of that would really have been possible without you know governments and especially governments in Europe, but but elsewhere as well, you know, tar- providing some targeted subsidy at those sectors, and that really helps them get off the ground. But what I think I've also seen is that when you, once you start doing that, markets react quite quickly, supply chains react quite quickly. And I think everyone's been surprised at the rate at which costs of technologies fall, and so the other thing that's super important as as well as starting the subsidy it's it's removing the subsidy and allowing market forces to really drive investment because if you get it right, you get to this point where you know you taking away subsidy yet the the rate of build out's accelerating um because you actually don't need to wait for government policy. You, you know, the, the market can go and do projects without worrying about when the policy is going to be there or going to not be there. But yeah, you eliminate a
0: lot of the uncertainties, right? That that's yeah.
1: Everything. So policy is great and subsidies great to get things going, but mm-hmm. also having a very clear uh, way in which that subsidy steps back is also really important to, to enable the market to sort of sort of sort of get off the ground itself. Um, and obviously, you can get that wrong. You can remove subsidy too quickly. And we've seen that in things like, you know, UK, onshore wind and solar, where you basically, and, and, and Spain as well, solar, where you, you know, had huge build out and then nothing for a period of years. But in other markets, like, and I think probably the, the best example is, is UK offshore wind, uh, where the subsidy sort of switched to a market-based mechanism where bidding got quite aggressive and prices have just plummeted. And the rate of growth is just continuing to increase, and that's I think probably been a good example of a slow withdrawal of subsidy, but in a way that's allowed the market to, you know, continue to accelerate.
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, as a former policymaker, I mean, when I decided to transition into the finance space, uh, it was when I was working in in the White House and seeing that all these initiatives we were moving forward on. Um, you know, I was overseeing what the federal government was doing in terms of large-scale PPAs, and I was a chief sustainability officer for the federal agency. So we were doing a lot of third-party finance contracts. And it really became very clear to me that not many of my colleagues in the policy space, which included me at the time, understood finance at all, right? So the idea that you could actually, at some point, remove those policies and unleash the market, it was speaking Chinese to folks. And we really worked on educating folks on, you know, what are some of the marketing mechanisms that could help unleash this and i feel like that's sort of the next you know it's interesting because now we're sort of facing a you know what we faced in 2008 2009 with another recovery act initiative coming forward we'll see probably more interesting policies moving forward but at what point do we start to move those out of the way and just continue to let the market address the growth here and it's simple to say that you
1: can you know you start the subsidy and then you stop subsidy and the market runs away from itself because what's going to happen next is there's going to be a new challenge you know whether it's storage or or you know interconnection capacity or whatever that might be that that will slow the growth again and that's the point at which you need policy to intervene and provide you know the right pricing mechanisms i guess to enable development and investment in in areas that that need it um to keep to keep the rate of of growth going so it's not it's obviously not a simple (laughs) it was simple you know all governments would do well uh it's obviously not simple but it's um I've certainly you know if you look back over the next ten years, you can clearly see where policies have been really effective, uh where where areas have been oversubsidized, you know, Spanish solar probably is a great example sort of pre-crisis, uh where, where subsidies have been removed too early, you know, and we've seen that in, in, in certain parts of the UK market. So yeah, that that balance is is really important.
0: So I wanna to get to, to Macquarie deeply here in a second, but just because you have a unique you having worked Worked in Europe. Most of our audience is is U.S. based and sort of knows the domestic U.S. market. But when you transitioned from you know focusing uh, focus in the UK and, and focusing in Europe to now focusing in in North America, what were some of the big biggest challenges or hurdles that you had sort of coming into that new new space, or were they you know very much similar markets uh, just with different different challenges?
1: I think there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I think. What's interesting about the U.S. market is it's not one market. (laughs) Right. It's really multiple (laughs) markets. Um, You know, and I think, you know, because of the EU, Europe has, has sort of imposed a market structure on most countries in Europe. And so there's actually less differences between the market structures of sort of supply, transmission, distribution, generation across Europe. In different countries, even though everyone speaks different languages and has different cultures, that that, that market structure for for energy is actually quite quite uniform. You know, it, it changes, but it's relatively uniform. Uh, whereas in the US, you have real extremes. So you have somewhere like the ERCOT market, which is in many ways an even more sort of competitive market than the Europeans have been trying to create. And then you'll have you'll have markets, you know, in like parts of the southeast, for example, where you know they're They're really just fully vertically integrated, and there's no competition, and you know the whole things look very, very different. Uh, So I think that's probably one difference in the US, and that's one of the really interesting things about working here. The other one is, and the biggest one really is, is the tax equity market. That method of you know rather than having a revenue stream where you can, as a financier, you can spend quite a lot of time, you know, optimizing how to what sources of capital to bring in, and you know money dollars are totally fungible unfortunately tax credits are not totally fungible and in fact the regulation prevents them from being fairly right. totally fungible so that really restricts sort of financial innovation and actually leads to u.s renewables projects having a much higher cost of capital than they should do because yeah, and of the you need could to press
0: the and- reset button on that right now here in the u.s would you Prefer the sort of European structure where you have those different revenue streams versus the tax equity because we, you know, it's, it's always a stuck right on a lot of these deals.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it, it's much more. It might it might look worse from a policymakers' kind of balance sheet perspective, but that's the kind of. That's only because you're hiding the problem off,
0: <laughs> right. off the,
1: the policymakers' balance sheet. It's a much less efficient way to subsidise renewables. It's just that you see the cold hard numbers of subsidy. You know on your ledger as a policymaker versus tax equity where you can you know pretend it doesn't it doesn't exist but right. yeah you know, foregoing revenue is, is exactly the same as paying a cost and you know ultimately uh, ultimately that it's a less efficient way to, for, for projects to be subsidized because senior debt prices are you know whatever it is you know, probably like sub percent right now tax equity still prices at around seven percent uh, and basically they're taking similar risks. Right. Once the uh, once the lawyers have uh, finished with the <laughs> right. turning the tax equity into the most protected piece of capital in the structure. So yeah, there's definitely an inefficiency. So you definitely reset that if you could, especially from a financier's perspective, or at least you know, someone who's an investor as well. You, you're trying to always find the, the cheapest source of capital. Uh, okay. And then I guess the final difference, and I think the the thing that I find most exciting about the U.S. market is. And it's actually, this is this is the argument against what I've just said, but because the tax equity market has always demanded that the projects seek, you know, effectively a revenue stream like a PPA, So in Europe, the, the sort of PPA almost was, was provided by the government. Um, right. And so there wasn't that need for the developer to go and find a revenue stream in order to secure the subsidy. In the US, the kind of the revenue, you need to find the revenue stream in order to get to secure the subsidy in the, the i.e. the tax invest tax equity investor. And because the US developers had to and the US market has had to always be out finding PPAs, the 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 US PPA market, particularly the corporate PPA market, is far more advanced than, than it is in Europe. Now I think Europe's starting to catch up now, or not catch up, but starting to get on the same path as, as the US and with with corporate essentially and a lot of projects being um, being sort of underwritten, effectively, or having their revenue underwritten by 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 PPAs, uh, particularly corporate PPAs, but the US is well ahead of Europe on from that perspective, and and it and for me that that's super exciting because I really one of the reasons I moved away from big government infrastructure projects towards renewables was the renewables market was at that that sounded a bit more entrepreneurial and a bit more driven by market forces. Um, right, and it's exciting that that's con- you know being in the US. It really feels like you know you are building projects for a market need, and there's a market demand, and your you know your challenge is to be able to deliver projects below the alternative cost of supply. And we're at that tipping point now in so many markets that you really feel that it's sort of acceleration and excitement of working in a market that's you know supplying something that people want at a price that's more attractive than they can get it from elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's it's those corporate players today who are making dramatic uh levels of influence on policy at the state level where this a lot of this work is being done. When, you know, when Amazon or Microsoft comes in and said we won't build a a, a a warehouse or a data center in your state until we can get clean power, you see shifts that happen in places like Virginia where, you know, it was like trying to roll a boulder up the hill up until they came in and helped unleash the uh some of the really positive gains we're seeing there.
1: Yeah, and they're also behind a lot of these, you know, regulated utilities procuring procuring power. I mean, right. this sort of voluntary procurement by utilities is sort of not—it's kind of semi-voluntary because actually yeah, right. <laughs> it's responding to a demand from their customers that um, saying, you know, go out and buy buy renewable power. So a lot of the PPAs we've signed recently have been utilities procuring on behalf of of behalf of corporates. So that, I think the 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 impact of that corporate. Um, demand is, is just enormous at the moment in the market.
0: Yeah, what would be helpful? I think folks are familiar with Mercuri as sort of a large investor advisor, uh, but can you talk a little bit about some of the different projects that uh, you've worked on or are, are working on with the Green Investment Group?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I guess uh, since we've been branded the Green Investment Group, um, you know, we've been we've been active across, you know, wind. In the US, at least across uh, onshore wind, uh, solar, and 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 battery storage, you yeah, one of the first projects we closed, and really was a, a project we closed around, and, and as part of launching the brand, was was you know pretty pretty standard in some ways, but an onshore wind project in um, in Texas, um, which which actually had been part of a development portfolio that we'd acquired a few years back, um, and you know you know it was in an area it was in the area of Texas where um, prices of turbines and things, you need to get them to, to a point and you need to get the PPA to the right point to make to make the project work. And, you know, that, that happened in, um, in 2018 and we, and we got that project closed. We also, um, around the same time, were in our sort of second round of um, financing and, and building out a big portfolio of uh, battery storage projects, uh, behind-the-meter battery storage projects um, in California, partnership with with AMS, so that in the end that that portfolio is now three hundred and forty megawatt hours um, of battery storage projects spread across i think yeah you know, somewhere between ninety and hundred different sites at large you know, cni with, with large cni customers so that the, the projects are on a sort of availability based contract with um, southern california edison which really underwrites sort of financing and then um and that's a ten year contract and then the and then the, the the batteries are also able to provide some sort of um, demand response and and sort of peak shaving services right. for for their host customers. So the, the sites on which they're based during during the availability period with SE because there's some spare capacity. And then beyond that ten years, um, those batteries will be operating in a merchant market or, or or will recontract. And that was a you know for us that was a fascinating project because yeah. Certainly our first experience of deploying batteries at that kind of scale and then doing that in this market, you know, the, the West LA Basin, which is uh, very constrained.
0: Uh, yeah, a that's fascinating.
1: Of so that's, that was a really interesting really imp- interesting project. It's interesting to work with AMS, who at the same time were developing the, the software to really be able to control those batteries and respond to, you know, both contractual requirements from uh, Southern California Edison, but also you know, market opportunities around around demand response and peak shaving so that yeah, that was a big learning experience and, and we were also lucky to sort of take it through two rounds of debt financing and so the first time we took it to market with the banks you know and the second time we took it to market with the banks we saw this stuff and the exciting thing about working in this space is you know that you sort of educate the market and the second time around everyone feels like they missed out the first time around and pricing <laughs> falls dramatically and things so it's um you know that was a Fascinating project. I think our only challenge at the moment with battery projects is it's just hard to find um, projects which have. Yeah, I think utilities are still learning how batteries work and how best to contract them, and so there's just a shortage of projects with with solid offtake contracts from utilities, and there's limited ways to monetize them in the in merchant markets in a lot of places. So that's the that's the challenge we're seeing. We probably thought, you know, when we started doing that original financing back in 2016 that. We'd be doing, you know, gigawatts of battery storage projects now, and that's just not materialized in the way that we'd expected. The market's just been a bit slower.
0: Yeah, it's 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 funny you say that because I feel we've been looking pretty heavily at, at, uh, at storage as well, and you know, it's not not only a state by state game right now, but you know, there's still so many nascent, there's only so many nascent opportunities, and people are not yet comfortable to really scale that up. First of all, that that project sounds really fascinating, and is a case study, right? Looking at it. And stepping back and saying, okay, if we need to go to a trillion dollars a year in you know, new renewable energy capacity investment over the next uh, the next decade to help keep our climate goals where they, you know, where the Paris Agreement is, you know, what are some of the missing pieces then that can help unleash the more more of that capital into those type of projects? Because it's those type of projects that help us, you know, stabilize the grid with renewables, really scale up the last decade's worth of work here. Yeah. So if there's any, you know, if there's any um, magic wand that you had to fix some of these these missing puzzle pieces, what would you do? It's a, it's not an easy question. I think the the biggest
1: barrier at the moment, especially to things like battery storage, is that the you know, you kind of you the financing, the people who understand the technology, the people who really understand the value of that asset and where that asset should be and where it can be most valuable. And sort of policymakers and regulators are all kind of separated today. And it's really hard for everyone. I think, you know, I think if you, if everyone could understand, you know, what AMS and, 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 and Southern California Edison did in the West LA basin and the value of that to Southern California Edison and what I meant in terms of, you know, reduced investment in to sort of the distribution upgrades uh, and stability on the grid and how that meant that they could you know put more renewables on the system with with less you know stability impacts. I think if everyone understood that and could explain that and then could develop a model to incentivize people to go and develop more projects like that and, and to pay for them then you'd have this huge huge number of battery storage projects that would would, would kind of pencil but at the moment, Like probably SCE still, who actually has all these batteries fed around one of its most congested areas, probably still learning the benefit of those um, and and, and what the value of having that infrastructure is in in their system. And, you know, and then they'd have to explain it to other utilities of different systems. And so I think that's probably the biggest, could wave the magic wand it would be to say that, you know, we all are equipped with this very simple mechanism whereby, you know, a developer and a utility and a regulator can all understand, you know, when it's better to put a battery somewhere, really what the impact of putting a solar project on the system in this place is and how that compares to how things have been done previously. Because I think the whole power system is so entrenched in terms of this idea of, of being very large generators and very large wires that then take, you know, the power to distribution networks and the idea of having you know, batteries in that distribution network, or having small generators distributing or like generating power when you can't, which you can't control. It just seems like a problem that should be avoided. From right. I think for most people who've been in the power market for a long time, rather than being seen as kind of this this opportunity um, to completely rerun the system, and that and it's super hard, I think. To, but I think if you were to wave that magic wand, it would be to give everyone that understanding of the benefits and how to and how to price them right? because I, I truly believe that the problem at the moment is that especially in battery storage which is one of the, the big barriers to deployment of more renewables in some cases especially in battery storage at the moment the people who are building or developing and building projects and investing in projects don't actually understand the benefit or the full benefit they're creating and they suddenly certainly can't monetize a lot of that benefit and on the other side the people who are receiving that benefit don't really understand the capabilities of the storage system and developers and the cost of financing it and so that it's really hard for the two to sort of meet in the middle
0: yeah interesting i mean chris I, first of all i want to just applaud the work you guys are doing macquarie and, and really trying to solve these complex problems i mean i think the example of the case study you showed of one of the projects you're working on really highlights that you know a lot of folks just aren't willing to touch that yet and the fact that you were working on it for for years to get it to work and and are you know getting that deployed is is phenomenal and we're going to need more of that to really get through what I think what you called before we discussed, or before we got online, you, you called the the decisive decade, right? To really get where we need to be in 2030 and beyond. It's going to take that type of creativity and that type of understanding from investors, not just policymakers and uh, utilities, but from investors to really scale, continue to scale this up. So thank you for the the incredible work you guys are doing. Thanks very much. We'd uh, love like to do more of it. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Love to find ways to work with you guys too. I, I, one thing I always ask all of my uh all my interviewees is if uh you could go back to yourself um, when you were, you know, heading off to university or maybe even coming out of university and could sit down and, and grab a beer, what piece of uh, career advice would you give yourself? Uh probably, you know, I was at university at the same time as Mark
1: Zuckerberg, so yeah he'd <laughs> probably be head to Stanford and uh, make friends with Mark <laughs> and join Facebook. Um, or, or join Google. I don't know. I right. think uh, you know, Mike but my peers seem to have created the world's uh, the world's largest fund, technology firm. <laughs> no, but uh, aside from that, which was a particular uh, particular period in, in uh, that I lived through, I guess at university. Um, like I think uh, I think the two things that for me are important are uh, find things that sort of interest you or, or or stir your curiosity, and then and be honest about what that is. Not what you should like or whatever. I think right. curiosity is super important, and then you know go and find go and find a uh, a group of you know kind of like minded people that you get on with, which I think is super important, and that's what I've certainly found at Macquarie. Um, yeah, and be prepared to sort of you know really throw yourself into things and work hard because you know I've certainly found that you know having having that curiosity and that interest and working with a bunch of you know kind of like-minded people that are, you know, interesting, intelligent, and share that curiosity it means that you can work pretty hard. And I think it was—I um I was reading some link. I can't remember where it was, but you know, Jamie Diamond. Diamond's only piece of a career advice for people was work hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's probably <laughs> a particular sort of, a,
1: it, you know, investment banking M and A view of the world. But um no, I think for me, it, it's you know, if you if you're working with fun people and interesting people and you've got a lot of curiosity, then yeah, the, the hard work is, it doesn't feel like hard work, I guess.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree.
1: So that, that's that been, yeah, for me, that would be the the advice I'd give to others and I guess give to myself.
0: Chris, thank you so much for, for joining us at Experts Only. Thanks very much. Good to chat. Yeah, absolutely. you got a fascinating uh, fascinating background. You guys continue to do great work. I want to thank the team at Macquarie for helping to put this together and to thank our producer, Carly Batten, for, as always, The hard work she does. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Please feel free to submit uh, folks you think we should be talking to. And uh, as always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.